listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. about a good story. I don't know if you can identify with this at all, but there's something about a story that has the power to communicate across every line barrier you can imagine. Ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status. Doesn't matter. Everyone loves a good story, right? Story time was my favorite part of the day I remember growing up. I can remember the teacher coming to the front of the room and, and reading to us and just, you know, kind of in trance, right? Stories are amazing. And uh, you don't have to be a, a book person either to love a good story. Even if you're, you're not, you don't like reading, that's okay. Uh, my guess, though, is that you still have a favorite movie or a favorite podcast or something that you've listened to that you're like, man, that story really grabbed my attention. Well, one of the TV shows our family has been binging lately is called The Crown. And The Crown is a fascinating look at the royal family. It's all about Queen Elizabeth. And it's interesting, not just because it gives you a glimpse kind of behind the curtain of the royal family, all the goings on and all that, but what it does is it reveals something that's very universal to the human struggle. And as we get this glimpse, we talk about Queen, we hear about Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip and their two sons. and Prince Charles and his failed marriage to Princess Diana, and then Harry and William. The show is, is fascinating because it talks about things that all of us struggle with, fear and anxiety and sin and guilt and suffering. In season three, there's this episode called Moon Dust, where Prince Philip, who again is married to Queen Elizabeth, he gets to meet the famous astronauts Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins after their moon landing. Now, Prince Philip, you had to know this about him, he's always kind of struggled. He's felt like he lives in his wife's shadow because his wife is the queen, right? So he's, he's kind of the, 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 the first man or something is how he feels. And he spends a lot of his time going to, you know, openings of factories and giving speeches and glad-handing people and just smiling. And he feels like his life doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. And he's always just struggled with this. And so when he sees these astronauts... Something about them calls to him, and he sees their lives, and in their lives, he sees them doing something magnificent, something spectacular, something really, really important. He even says that they are at one with the world because they've achieved something spectacular. He says they are at one with God and happy. See, Philip has this longing for something amazing, something spectacular in his life. He longs for greatness. I wonder if you can identify with that longing at all, this sense that maybe life isn't all you'd hoped it would be, that maybe you haven't accomplished everything spectacular that you wished for. Well, in our text today, David wants to do something great for God. 
He wants to do something big and, and meaningful. He wants to build God a temple. And, and up until this point, the Israelites, they had been worshiping in the tabernacle, which is kind of like a glorified yurt. Like it was, it was really nice and really intricate and really ornate, but it was temporary, right? It, it was never meant to be this permanent thing. So David says, no, I'm going to build something permanent for God. I'm going to build this grand, magnificent temple, right? David had this in his heart, something grand and epic and great for God. And this is actually a really noble request because there's nothing in the text to indicate that his motives are impure. And yet, God doesn't grant it, does He? Because it's not David, it's his son Solomon who's going to be the one to build the temple. In our text today, God gives, gives David a subtle corrective. He, he doesn't rebuke him, He doesn't call him out. But what he does is he, he gently kind of affirms his desire and then guides it in another direction. And God does this by saying three things to David. And these three things he says to David are what he says to us this morning too. He says, I see your past, I secure your future, and I purpose your present. I see your past, I secure your future, and I purpose your present. So that's the roadmap where we're headed today. First, I see your past. Let me just highlight a couple of verses from our passage that we read, verses 7 and 8. This is God talking to Nathan. It says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you. Now, what is God saying here? He's pointing David backwards, isn't he? He's telling him to look back in the, in the rearview mirror of his life and to remember God's faithfulness in the past. See, God sees where David has been. He knows everything he's walked through up to this point. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows each and every scar on David's battle-hardened body. He knows the trials and temptations and the sufferings and the joys that he's walked through. God was there for all of it. He was there when David defeated Goliath and the crowds cheered him on. God was there when Saul betrayed David and threw a spear at him. God was there when David's wife, Michael, was stolen from him and and given to someone else in marriage, and then she eventually comes back, but they're never able to quite rekindle the romance that was there. They're never quite able to get to the point that they were at the beginning. It never fully recovers. God was there when David fled for his life, when he fought the Philistines and the Amalekites, when his best friend died, when David committed sexual assault and adultery with Bathsheba when he murdered Uriah, when he brought the ark to Jerusalem, when he failed to parent his kids the way that he should have, when at the end of his life, David gives in to Satan's temptation to distrust God, and he takes this census of Israel. You've got to count the numbers because we, we have to know, we have to be able to control rather than trust God. I see your past. God saw David's past. He saw all of it. And he sees your past too, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows where you've been. He knows what you've done. 
He knows you even better than you know yourself. He knows your successes and failures. He knows the parts of your life that you wish you could go back and erase. He knows the decisions you wish you, you could turn a time machine on, go back and go that other direction at the fork in the road. The browser histories you wish you could purge. The failed attempts at greatness and at doing something spectacular. But here's the really, really amazing thing about God, okay? Like, He sees all of that. He sees it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Our failures and sins and the guilt and the shame, but because of Jesus, He doesn't hold it against us. He sees your past and He says, no, no, that's not who you are. I love you. I forgive you, and if you believe in me, your sins are truly cast as far as the east is from the west. It's a long way, right? He chooses not to remember them anymore. Here's what that means for you today, dear Christian. You are not your past. You are not your past. You are not your mistakes and failures, no matter how big or deep or wide they may be, no matter how unrelenting your conscience might be or the lies Satan might be tempting you to believe, God says that your past does not get the last say. Instead, you are a beloved child, a beloved son or daughter of the King. You are great not because of the magnitude of your accomplishments, but because of the magnitude of His love. See the difference there, right? As William Barclay says, the greatness of the Christian lies in the fact that He is God's. Isn't that good? The greatness of the Christian lies in the fact that he or she is God's. So that's the first thing that, that God says to us, is I, I see your past. Number two, I secure your future. Again, back to 1 Chronicles 17, 8 through 9. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning. What tense are these verbs in? future, right? God is making a promise to David about his future, isn't he? He's promising peace and rest and security for the people of God and that their enemies will be defeated. You see, when God reminds David, like the first part, right, I see your past, when he sees your past, he does that to give us courage for the future, And it's a future where God will be present to fulfill His promises from long ago. God's companionship will be constant and steadfast, invincible, unthreatened by any of the dangers David will face. You see, Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God. That means when He says something, it's as good as done. In fact, grammatically, that's true as well. A lot of times, prophetic literature is written in the past tense, even though it hasn't been completed yet, right? It's in, in the future, but it's in the past tense to show that's how certain and 
sure this is. It's as if, in the hands of God, it's as if it's been completed already, right? So people of God, we can be confident and secure in our futures. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about my future, it seems a little bit, I don't know, scary. When you compare the future to the past and to the present, it's really different. Because the past, you can, you can actually remember, right? Like we all have memories. We all have things that, that we recall from our childhoods or, or yesterday or, or whatever, right? We get the past. And the, the present, I think we understand that too. I'm here with you today. We're at Elam. I'm looking at you. You're looking at me, right? There's, there's pews here. There's, there's a screen there. We know what the present is, like it's physical, tangible. But the future, something about that... A little bit different. It's just this, this big, fuzzy, black hole. We can't see what's coming, and, and that can be terrifying. And I imagine David felt this pretty hard at this stage in his life, too. Because, I mean, w- when you hear the name David, what's the most memorable story that you think of from David's life? David and Goliath, right? That was kind of the pinnacle of it. Like, maybe David peaked at that point. Well, this text today is happening years after that. And David's getting older. He, he was a, a seasoned king at this point. So, is God done with him? Is he going to put David out to pasture? Is he going to bring in a newer, younger king with more energy and vision to bring change out with the old and in with the new? No, God is not done with David, and He is not done with you. As long as you have breath in your lungs, God is never done with you. I mean, what does Jeremiah tell us? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to what? Prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope, and a future. God has plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, to us who only see through a glass darkly this side of heaven, the future looks like an endless fog full of murky questions. And what I imagine when you look at your own future, there might be more questions than answers, Right? But the greater truth here is that God's word of promise is stronger than the fears and the anxieties that plague us. And the ultimate future He has in mind is eternal life for all who believe. So those are the first two things God says to us. I see your past. I secure your future. And finally, I purpose your present. Why am I here? What is my purpose? I'm not asking you that as a a pastor. I'm not confused or anything. But um, just generally speaking, that's a question we all wrestle with at some point in our lives, right? Like, why am I here? That's this burning question we all want to know. Well, guys, I have some great news. Pastor Luke's figured it out. I cracked the code. I know why you're here. If you want to pay it forward, cut your checks to Elam Lutheran Church. Just saying. The truth here in all seriousness, is that it's actually really simple. Now, here it is. Write this down, okay? 
You are here to love your neighbor. You are here to love your neighbor. Now, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is kind of this great foundational text for Protestant churches. You probably know it. If you know it, you can say it with me. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not from ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast, right? And a lot of times we put a period there, but guess what? There's another verse, right? Verse 10, and what does that say? For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, God has prepared us to do what? Good works, okay? What is a good work? What, what qualifies as a good work? How, how good does it have to be to be a good work, right? Well, we get a clue when Jesus himself explains what the main teaching of the law is. He's talking to these Pharisees, and, and they ask him, well, what's the most important law, right? Can you sum up the law for us? And here's what Jesus says. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what it really boils down to. Good works are acts of love geared toward your neighbor. Good works are acts of love geared toward your neighbor. And this talks about love of God, right? But ultimately what happens when we receive God's love is we become like these, these cups or these bowls that having received in abundance, God's love overflows from us, right? We receive from God vertically and that spills over horizontally into the world around us and into our, the lives of our neighbors. Here's how Martin Luther puts this, and I love it. He says, God does not need our good works but our neighbor does. What does he mean by that? Well, to speak of God having a need is to say that God lacks something. It's to say that he's incomplete in some way and in some respect. But the God that we find in Scripture is complete in and of himself. He is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He, he existed before the world began. He existed before I was here, and I'm guessing before you were here, right? God is, is complete. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need my love. He doesn't need my good works. He is God after all, and everything necessary for our salvation has been accomplished in Christ, right? He said, it is finished, and he meant that. So between us and God, that relationship is good. God doesn't need our good works, but I tell you what, our neighbors do. Now, I don't know what kind of neighbors you all have, but there are some needy people out there. By the way, when he, he talks about neighbor, he doesn't just mean the person living next to you. It certainly could be that, but he's really talking about any person that you happen to be in the same room with at any given time in your life. Really, everyone is your neighbor. Whoever you're in the vicinity of it in any given moment. And, and we as human beings, we have a whole lot of needs. So that's why God has put me here, is to love and serve my neighbor. And that's why he's put you here too, to, to do good deeds, to love and serve your neighbor. So maybe a good self-reflective question would, would be to ask, what, is, what does my neighbor need? 
What does my neighbor need, this person that in all likelihood I already have a relationship with? Maybe a friend or a coworker or a colleague or someone, someone that you have some connection with. We ask the question, how can I help? What is, what is one little thing I can do to share God's love with them? Maybe they're elderly and they need help with shopping. Maybe they're young and they need a night of childcare. Maybe they don't have a good home life and they need a friend. Maybe they just need to know that someone cares enough to invite them over for supper or to call them on the phone or to talk to them or to notice them. It's really not as complicated as we, we make it out to be so much of the time. Back to the crown for a moment. I won't give too many spoilers here, but... After his encounter with Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, Prince Philip ends up having his expectations totally shattered. It turns out that none of these astronauts were thinking about greatness at all. And he's asking them these questions, like trying to, to get them to give this big existential answer and like tell them the meaning of life. And he's asking them, they're kind of confused. And they basically say, well, look, we were too busy doing the tasks right in front of us to worry about whether we were doing something supremely meaningful with our lives. In Christian language, we would say they were too busy doing good deeds to worry about greatness. You see, that's the attitude that God calls us to as well. I see your past, I secure your future, and I purpose your present. <clears throat> well, as we wrap up this morning, I want to share with you just what was my favorite part of this passage, and, and maybe you picked up on it already. We've talked about this theme of reversal in the Old Testament, right? Well, it hits hard right here because this passage starts out, what, with David wanting to, to build a house for God, and by the end of it, God is saying, actually... I'm going to build a house for you. Right, David thinks he's going to do something for God. God shows him the vital truth that what God does for David is infinitely more important than what David does for God. And what God does for us is infinitely more important than what we do for him. Psalm 127.1 is one of my favorite verses. I'll pray it a lot of times on Sunday mornings as I'm getting ready for the service. And unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. So who builds who a house here? See, the house that God builds, our home, is ultimately not one we make with our own two hands. It's not made of brick or stone or mortar. It's made with the flesh and blood of the crucified and risen Son of God, Jesus Christ who bled and died on a Roman cross so that all who believe in Him might not perish, but have what? Eternal life. See, God doesn't need great things from you. He doesn't need you to slay Goliath. He, that is Jesus, the son of David, slays Goliath for you. Sin, death, and the devil, all the demons of darkness that we daily face, fear and doubt and depression and sickness and conflict, he took all of that on his shoulders 2,000 years ago, and that's what greatness looks like. 
Greatness looks like Jesus, the God who sees your past, secures your future, and purposes your present. May you find yourself believing these eternal truths this morning. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.